So what is our name? It's Lettered Streets Covenant Church. Church, a church is made up of disciples of Jesus or people wondering what disciples of Jesus do on Sunday or people that are exploring Jesus, right? It's about Jesus. And therefore, it would make sense for us as Lettered Streets Covenant Church to focus our preaching and, and teaching and singing and praying and, and serving on a, or out of parts of the Bible that talk directly about Jesus, such as the four Gospels or the epistles or even the revelation of John while he's on the island of Patmos. And sure enough, for most of the church year, we are focused on those books. We just spent two years in 1 Corinthians, at least the winter and parts of summer, together. But it doesn't take a scholar to figure out that the four Gospels, the epistles, and the revelation of John all use metaphors, quotes, and allusions that are found in the Hebrew Scriptures, or what many call the Old Testament. Jesus and those who wrote the New Testament assume that their original audience would have known the Old Testament and known it well. And after all, about two-thirds of this Bible that we have are, is Old Testament, not New Testament. The stories of the Old Testament shape the stories in the New. The stories actually shape the way Jesus decided to minister, the things he decided to say and do, and the way he taught. It is safe to say, then, that the stories of Scripture shape us. And that's why, as a church, um, we are committed to preaching and teaching out of the Hebrew Scriptures each fall. I know it's not fall, but my kids are back in school already, so it's fall to me, okay? So uh, we're, we're gonna, we, we, we've been doing this ever since we've been a church. We've spent four years in Genesis, and this is our third year in the book of Exodus. In these stories, we learn not only about God and about His people, but we learn something of how we fit into this story as well, as, as God's image bearers. Now, currently, we find ourselves in the story of the exodus from Egypt. This is the defining moment for the nation of Israel. The Hebrew people, of course, were enslaved uh, under the oppressive Egyptian uh, empire. They were forced to make bricks, which was one of the most horrible uh, jobs in the ancient world. There are fantastic poems written about it. Uh, uh, people would rather be dogs than than uh, make bricks in the ancient world. Now, God heard their cry, and he set out to rescue them through the leadership of Moses and through fantastic feats of power overcoming uh, the perceived gods of the Egyptians. This evening, we pick up the story as the Israelites are already out of Egypt. They're through the Red Sea. They're in the wilderness. And now God is beginning to teach them something of who he is and who they can be with him. And it's in the wilderness at Sinai where God gives the Ten Commandments, literally the Ten Words. Well, many of you are teachers, and I don't know if you still do this, but back in my day, the, at the first, beginning of term, before you had any instruction, you had pretests so that the, you know, the teacher could find out what you know, what they need to teach. So what we're going to do is just have two teams. This team, you need to elect five contestants to come forward, and this team, five contestants. And the longer you take, the longer the sermon's going to last, so just start coming forward. Five contestants. First one up here gets to pick their color, if that matters. Okay. I can start picking them. Come on up, LL. Schoon, you look brave. I don't know. No, okay. <laughs> five. Can, oh, we can do this with three. We'll do this with two. Blue team. Ah, oh, Chelsea. This team is underrepresented. No, you're, you're on the blue team. You're on the blue team. Blue team is this side. 
We can go two. We can go two people. Okay. Let, we're going to see if from memory your team can name the Ten Commandments. Okay. Here we go. Emily. We'll make you the red team. Don't leave Emily hanging. Somebody with uh, some commandment skills. And the way this game is going to work, because LL, she was brave, come on up, Bruce. Uh, because LL was brave and she came up first, th this, these teams can collaborate. You cannot use your Bibles or smartphones or call a friend. Uh, you cannot tell them anything, especially Old Testament scholars. Um, but, um, which we have one in the room today. So, uh, You guys can collaborate, and you get to go first. And low-hanging fruit, you don't have to have them in order. You just need to, to, to put them where you think they go. It's okay. Uh, if you get one right, you get a point, and then they get to go back and forth. If you miss one, then you just, that turn is over, and then they get to go, okay? So, so right now you get the easiest, because if you know, just know one, you can put it up. Let's give, them, let's give them a hand. Yeah. Good job, good job. All right. Starting off in a good place. They're not in order, but we'll get there. We'll get there. That was not a recommendation. So, yeah. So here are our Ten Commandments. Now, what comes to mind when you think Ten Commandments? Someone says that word, or I, I said, hey, I'm preaching on the Ten Commandments. You're like, are you you're, could be like, ugh. What? Anything else come to mind when, when you think of the Ten Commandments? <laughs> Mel Brooks. <laughs> Heston Brooks, okay, yeah. yeah. First commandment with a promise, that's right. Schoolmaster, okay, yeah. Maybe courtroom controversy or you know, the big things in the news uh, about where they can be in public places, that kind of thing. Um, some people have a problem with the commandments. They're sometimes seen as negative, right? It's, I like Emily, which you did because you've been influenced by Jesus already. Uh, be faithful to your mate, but originally thou shalt not commit adultery, right? So that some people don't like the fact that they seem to be framed negatively, that these are downer things. And, and then you find out that Pastor Chris is going to be preaching on these for 10 weeks because there's 10 of them, and oh my goodness. So... I'll give you my promise that I think these are fantastic, that they're life-giving, um, stick with me, um, and I, I think it will pay off. And I want to talk a little bit about how we think about the Ten Commandments. Are they relevant in light of Jesus? Are they helpful in the world we live in? There's ten things on here. There's a lot of problems in the world that these don't directly address, right? Um, in other words, why should we care? Why should... I take 10 weeks to preach through these 10 commandments. Is that going to be relevant? I, the Sunday school answer is, well, they're important because they're in God's word and he gave them and so they're important. And that's okay. That's a, an adequate theological answer, but it doesn't, it, it's not an answer that produces a deep longing to better understand the 10 commandments. And it certainly doesn't, at least for me, capture my imagination or inspire my heart. And Thankfully, there are very good reasons why, why the Ten Commandments are not only relevant, but life-affirming, and I think inspirational. So much so that we're going to walk through them one by one over the next several weeks, nine more weeks. 
This evening, let me just give you a lay of the land. We're going to take an overview of the commandments, um, and we're also going to deal a little bit with the first one, um, at least now even if you have studied these before, you know, well, which Ten Commandments? Because certain traditions like Orthodox Jewish, Catholic, Lutheran traditions, um, the first commandment is not thou shall have no other gods but me. It is I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Why? That's not a commandment. Because literally, there are no Ten Commandments. In Hebrew, it's the Ten Words. And so, some traditions lump, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself any idols as one commandment. That's the second commandment. The Reformed tradition and some others, um, what we're going to do is look at them um, in a different way. Don't worry, we're going to cover it all. You're not missing anything. Um, But uh, that's, that's the overview that we're going to have. Let's begin with some observations. Why did God give Moses and the people of Israel these specific laws? Most of them, to me, seem fairly obvious. Don't steal. Don't murder. Do not commit adultery. Are we to understand that before the Ten Commandments were given by God that people did not know these things? Of course not. From as early on in the Bible as Cain killing Abel, we understand that murder is not something that God likes. Um, In the story of Noah, we read that the people were only doing evil all the time, so much so that God wiped these evil people off of the face of the earth. Conversely, Noah was a righteous man, and so God decided to save the world through him and his family. On what basis were one people evil and Noah righteous if there was no sense of law or morality? In Egypt, for example, the famous Book of the Dead dated roughly 550 B.C. or 1550 B.C., describes a man going before the god Osiris and giving an account of his life. Listen to what he says. So this is a dead man going before the the god of death, Osiris, and he says this, I've not committed evil, I've not stolen, I've not been covetous, I've not robbed, I've not killed a man, I've not told lies, I've not committed adultery, I've not blasphemed against my local god. So on the surface, the Ten Commandments don't seem all that original, And in one sense, the Ten Commandments don't really introduce a whole lot new to humanity on the surface. Which brings us back to the question of why these laws presented in this way. And this is where archaeology has helped us tremendously. In the ancient world, when a king conquered a land, he set up what's called a Susarian or Susarian uh, treaty, and we have many examples of these treaties, Egyptian, uh, Hammurabi, uh, Hammurabi from Babylon, Assyrian, Hittite, and others, and common to all of these treaties are six elements. And if you're a geeky note-taker like me, you could follow along. I'm going to revisit these in a moment. First, there's a preamble to all of these treaties where the king identifies himself by name and reputation. The glorious Patrick McAvoy, conqueror of the seven realms, or you know, something like this long, like big title. I'm, I'm basically your, your new daddy. Okay, like it's, it's all really puffing yourself up. Second, there's a horse, a historical review that usually includes the king's exploits and always includes the fact that he just conquered you. Uh, I'm the king who just conquered you and killed half your people. Now you are my subjects, my vassal state. Third, there are stipulations. Basically, I defeated you, and the only way we can live in peace together is if you do the following things and don't fall out of line. These stipulations are followed, fourthly, by the command to display the law in a public place. Fifth, 
the element written into the document is a list of gods who are supposedly there as witnesses. So I, the conquering king, make you my vassal state, and all of these gods of the stars and the moon and everything are witnesses to this new treaty. And last, there is a list of extensive curses if you should break the law, uh, usually ending in some form of horrible death, uh, and a list of blessings if you keep the law, like you stay on my good side as the new conquering king. The motivation to keep the suzerain treaty is fear. The motivation is if you do not follow the treaty of the new conquering king, you will die, and it will not be good. These suzerain treaties or covenants predated the Ten Commandments by centuries, and by the time Israel was wandering in the desert, everyone knew what a suzerain suzerain treaty looked like. They knew that when a king conquered a people, this is how you wrote up the new agreement of how to get along in that land. Just like in our culture, there's set ways to write certain things. When I go to the store and... um, Corey doesn't know I've gone, I leave a note. And what do I do when I leave that note? I leave it on a piece of scratch paper that's always in my top drawer. It's just what I do, and she knows that's what I do. Or I send a text nowadays, but scratch paper. When you rent an apartment, if you've ever rented an apartment or a house, there's usually some form of contract that includes things like, I will pay my rent on time at X amount of dollars. I will not trash the place. I will put a security deposit down that I will get back if I don't trash the place. That, you know, and if you've ever rented an apartment or a house, they all pretty much look the same. It's very familiar how you write a rental document. So when God goes to make a covenant with Israel, it's no surprise that he chooses to use a format that makes sense to his audience, a format that they've seen before. And he uses the format of the suzerain treaty as something that is familiar to his people. But there's another reason that God decides to give Israel this law in this format. Because this law is actually unique among every other treaty in the ancient world. There's nothing like it in the world. And if you want to get someone's attention, one way to do it, and the Bible does this all the time, is to take something familiar and then turn it on its head. Artists call that bending genre, and artists do this all the time. Uh, Some of you, if you're nerdy like me, loved the show Firefly by Joss Wheaton. It was kind of a cult classic. Here's this sci-fi show, supposedly in a spaceship, but it's kind of like a Western. And then there's comedic elements, and there's drama, all mixed into this one, I think, fantastic show. Uh, Maybe you're not into that. Maybe you're into Christopher Guest movies like Spinal Tap, Best in Show, A Mighty Wind, and Mascots coming out. These shows bend the genre of documentary. The mastery of these shows is that the the deadpan, the straight face, taking themselves in character so seriously when really it's a mockumentary, poking fun with satire at all these wonderful things. And so it takes a standard genre or format that we're familiar with, the documentary, and by turning it on its head, it's so hilarious and uh, can communicate different things than just a regular documentary. I bring this up because... Some of you have probably run into critics or will run into critics who love to point out that the Ten Commandments are not all that unique and that they come onto the world scene of history as Johnny come lately. Um, They're predated by all these other treaties that are more interesting and more uh, original. And the conclusion for some is that Ten Commandments just aren't all that special. They aren't creative and therefore they aren't very important and they're definitely not worth getting all religious about. This is where my job gets really fun. I think the Ten Commandments are amazing, 
not because they mirror other ancient Near Eastern treaties, but because they mirror those treaties, I think, on purpose, and then turn them on their heads and diverge in significant ways that communicate something powerful about who God is and who we can be. It's to their uniqueness in comparison to other ancient treaties that I want to turn now. A few minutes ago, I mentioned six elements common to an ancient Near Eastern uh, suzerain treaty. The first is the preamble. The king who conquered a people gives his name and title and exploits. The Ten Commandments, of course, start in a similar way, but the difference is immediately striking. It is not Moses or any king who gives the commandments. It's Yahweh himself. No other treaty in human existence, to my knowledge, is given by a god, let alone by Yahweh. They're all given by human kings. So from the very start, we know that we're dealing with something special. And from the very beginning, we know we're dealing with a God who communicates directly to his people. And from the very beginning, we see we're dealing with a God who is personal. I am the Lord your God, is what he says. The second element is the historical review, and this is the spot where kings would usually describe their power and the way that they conquered and humiliated you, and basically saying, I'm the one who took your lunch money, and if you want me now to protect you from other bullies, you will obey me. But in the biblical text, Yahweh describes himself as the one who delivered them from the land of Egypt, from the house of slavery. Before any demands are made, God reminds Israel what he's done for them, not what he's done to them. This is a God who graciously delivered his people, and it's a God who reveals himself. You see, God isn't just giving them a law. He's sharing his heart with them. He's saying, these are the things that are important to me. You have to appreciate how unique that is in the ancient world. People had a pantheon of gods, and they never really thought that they knew what these gods actually wanted on any given day. They're like psychotic people with with power, you know, like always flip-flopping what they wanted. And so you made sacrifices to them in hope that they would do what you wanted, but there was no sure thing. But this is a God who says, I am sharing my heart with you. I am sharing what's important to me. The third element is the giving of the law. And this is very similar to other ancient treaties, but as we'll see in the weeks to come, this law is so much more gracious and life-affirming that it is good news to people rather than burdensome. The fourth element in an ancient treaty is that the laws of these treaties were to be on public display. In theory, that was done so that people in a community would be without excuse. Here's the problem. First of all, if I conquered you from another nation, there's no guarantee that you even speak my language. So I put the stone up with the laws on it. You maybe can't even read it. Second of all, even if we spoke the same language, the vast majority of people were illiterate unless you were the literate elite. Less than 5% of people were could read and write in those days uh, as far as these lo- uh, reading this law. So what would happen is that, that the elite who could actually understand the law would use it to their advantage and oppress the people who couldn't have it. 
The Ten Commandments, by contrast, are completely unique and that they're the only ancient law that was given in a way that merged the sacred and the, sac- uh, the, sacred and the secular. All other ancient laws were car- compartmentalized into the legal sphere or the political sphere. These other uh, suzerain treaties were a king saying, you will do these things to stay on my good side. Have your religion. That's over in this corner. This is the legal side. But the Ten Commandments are completely different. They're given in a context of worship where there's not compartments of legal and and holy and religious. They're merged together. The Ten Commandments don't just have things to say about legal precedence, but they have something to say about what you do in the bedroom if you're married. And they have things to say about how you treat other people in society. There's no sacred and secular divide. All aspects of life are important to God and therefore all aspects of life are holy. The Ten Commandments are not just laws for the literate elite. They were recited and memorized in worship. That way people could worship the lawgiver, and they could, know how, uh, the, they could know the law deep in their hearts, and even children and Ill- illiterate adults would know the Ten Commandments because they were sung in worship and chanted in worship and recited as a community. In the secular ancient Near Eastern treaties, various gods were invoked as witnesses between the king and the vassal state or the people that he conquered. But in the Ten Commandments, God is the only God of relevance. The witnesses are not other gods, but the people. As if to say, I am God, the God who rescued you, You are my witnesses to my grace and power, to my love and sovereignty over creation. Follow me, not because I conquered you, but because I set you free. What a difference. There's nothing else like that. You have to appreciate that the Israelites rejoiced when God gave them the law. Psalm 1 speaks of the joy and blessing of the one who follows God's law. It points to life. Psalm 19 is an outpouring of worship and praise to the God uh, who creates and gives the law. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. And of course, later on in that same psalm, the psalmist talks about the law being as sweet as honeycomb, sweeter than honeycomb. Finally, the sixth element of an ancient Near Eastern uh, suzerain treaty uh, was the list of curses should one break the law. You could be put to death for breaking the law because it was seen as treason against the king. It was the law that kept people loyal to the king, and it was fear of punishment that kept them faithful to the law. But the Ten Commandments, at least in their original short form, have no such element about them. In God's law, it isn't the faithfulness of the people that allows them into relationship uh, with God. It's His faithfulness. It's Yahweh who initiated rescue in the beginning. It's Yahweh who calls out the people of Israel and makes them his special people. And he calls them in chapter 19 a kingdom of priests. The Ten Commandments aren't a way of keeping people on God's good side. They are expressions of God's grace. God knows that by following these laws, we will experience thriving lives We're not called to obey out of mere fear. We're called to obey to experience life for the good of of ourselves and our communities around us. Nowhere is this seen more clearly than the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Think for a moment how revolutionary this commandment was 
in a time and culture where polytheism was all around Israel. In fact, they'd lived in it for 400 years in Egypt. For the sun and the moon and the stars and the wind and the rain and the oceans, all to be gods that had control over those elements. Fishermen believed that the god of the sea would put fish into their nets. And if they didn't catch anything that day, they believed that the god of the sea didn't put fish in their nets. I must have done something not to please the gods. I must up my sacrifice in order to get more fish. And all of a sudden, there's a command to have only one god, the god, the creator of heaven and earth. It would have been mind-blowing, paradigm-shifting. But you could also see it as extremely liberating. It's not that there is only one God. It's that there's only one God, and that God is Yahweh. He's more powerful than the Egyptian gods who had you enslaved all those years. And he's not only powerful, but he's gracious and good. That means you don't have to sacrifice your children to Molech in hopes that he looks favorably uh, favorably upon you. And you don't have to cut yourself to get Baal's attention to wake him up out of his drunken slumber. And you don't have to give gold to the sea god before getting in your boat and hope that you won't be swamped by a storm. By the way, this polytheistic worldview is inherently anti-intellectual. It's anti-science. The two, in their purest forms, can't coexist. If you think there's a deity behind your catch of fish, you won't have any motivation to consider that perhaps you get more fish if you use a different kind of bait, or fish at a different depth, or use a different hook or a different net, or fish at a different time of the year for, in a different place. But by worshiping Yahweh, the God who is the creator of heaven and earth, you're invited to use reason. He is the one who gave you your brain and says, use it. You are invited to explore his world because it's his world. And the more we figure out about how it works, the more we can appreciate the maker and sustainer of this world. That's another topic for another time. But it's really intriguing to me. The point is that the law simply doesn't work if you don't have the first commandment. See, if you believe that God is good and gracious, if you believe that he invites you into his family because of his faithfulness, you don't have to covet your neighbor's stuff. If you believe that every person has worth because they're made in God's image, you won't murder them, right? You will refrain from hating them because they're made in the image of God. But if you don't trust God, if you place your faith in the God of greed or believe in the evil God of scarcity, uh, you will fear going without, missing out. You will scratch and claw and grab at what you can grab, even at the expense of others, because you don't really believe anyone else is looking out for you. Israel repeatedly failed in the desert whenever they doubted God's goodness, and they often turned to idols and false gods. That's what makes the story of Jesus' temptation in the desert so amazing. Where Israel failed, Jesus would succeed. Where Satan tempted Jesus by offering him power and authority without the cross, without obedience to God, Jesus would say, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
Jesus is the only faithful servant of God. He's the only one who is always faithful to the law. And when you and I fail, the law or the laws, there's so many other ones, right? We can put our trust in Jesus, in his success, in his faithfulness. That is our salvation. We we aren't called to obey the commandments without the help of God. And that help begins with trust and worship of God. I think if we dig deep enough, we all have a problem with other gods in our lives. And next week, we're going to get more into idolatry and what that can look like. So I'll shelf that for a minute. But I think there's another problem that's also big in our culture. And and the fact is that when the Ten Commandments were written, they were written in a time when everyone was religious. It wasn't a matter of believing in God. It was a matter of which God to believe in. Joy Davidman, writing in the mid-20th century, notes that for modern people, the command, thou shall have no other gods before me, should also mean, thou shall have me. You shall worship God. I think that's a struggle for some of us, too. Just going through life that's pretty dang comfortable for a lot of us in this culture without ever even giving God consideration that he is the giver of all of these good things. In fact, today, more people come to know Yahweh and Jesus out of a polytheistic or animistic culture than they do from a materialist secular culture, because at least those people are used to worshiping gods for everything, and it's great when they say, wait a minute, I just have to worship one? Ah, so much easier, and he does the sacrificing for me? I mean, that's a fantastic gospel, but if you're living in a world where you're upwardly mobile and you don't think you need anything, it usually takes quite a shock to the system to turn to God. It takes an illness or a loss or some smack in the face that is painful. Let me suggest three simple ways we can respond to the first commandment. First, be honest. If you don't put God first in your life, like probably most of us in some areas of our life, admit it. If you don't feel especially close to Him, he already knows that. Confess it. Confront your apathy. Write it down. Say it to someone you trust. Speak it out loud to the Lord about your divided allegiances. That's the first step, and often for me it's a repeated step, toward new life. The good news of Jesus is that He is faithful. He alone fulfilled the law. The gospel is is not that certain really good people can be Christians. It's that Jesus is the only Savior, not you and not me. He is faithful on our behalf. We always talk about how Jesus died on our behalf. Absolutely. But he's also faithful on our behalf. All that stuff in the desert where he defeats Satan, that is basically him recapitulating Israel. He is doing what Israel could never do, what they failed to do. He's saying, I'll do this for you. I will be the faithful human being. And he's the faithful human being for you and me as well. Rejoice. He has fulfilled the law. Trust in him not yourself, and then you won't obsess over failing all the time. Second, ask for help. 
The gospel, or part of the gospel, is that Jesus covers our sin and fulfills the law on our behalf. That's absolutely foundational. That was step one, confessing it because he already took care of it for us. The second part, though, is that he gives us his life, his spirit in us to make us new people. If, for those of you who are following Jesus, have you Think about like the day you started following Jesus, if that was a time, or even think back five years. Have you changed at all? I mean, I can't tell if it's just age or having three kids now, but I, I think I've mellowed some. I think I've, my character is changing as I allow the presence of God over the years to chip away the rough edges. I've got so much more to go, but he's changing me, you guys. I, I know so many of your stories now, walked with you. He's changing you too. And if you ever doubt that, and you and I have even some relationship, I bet I can show you a way I've noticed it. And I bet people around you do too. Um, ask the Spirit, the Spirit of God who lives in everyone who has faith in Jesus. Ask Him to help you love God more, to, ha- to give you more desire from him, for Him. Uh, ask Him for the ability to trust in Jesus. You can ask for that. That's a great thing to ask for. Ask the Spirit to help you be more like Jesus. That's the second thing you can do. And the third, and this isn't like, well, get the other two done first, and then the third. The third will help you do the other two. The third thing is to be in Christian community. I can't emphasize this enough. Uh, This is where we are exposed to the gospel. And Sunday is an essential, essential part of that. And obviously, I'm preaching to the proverbial choir right now because you're here on Labor Day weekend. I mean, good for you. Uh, But make sure it's a priority. Yeah, I'm going to lay up a stinker sermon. This might even be one in your opinion. I'm sorry, but it's it's not always about your experience, you know? There's going to be times when I didn't like any of the songs today. Well, tough. You, you get communion later, and then that's, that's really awesome. Yeah. Church isn't all about you, but it needs you. Like, we're a community, and so and through the ups and downs, what we do here is we expose ourselves to a rhythm um, that is somewhat predictable and unpredictable, and, and that's a great mixture to have. You will receive in some way through word, through prayer, through the, through the table, there's all these avenues to receiving the gospel every single week that we're made for this, you guys. So make that a priority. Uh, be proactive. Make sure that you're regularly exposed to God's word on your own, uh, in, a, in, a, in a small group, in a, in a discipleship group, with, with a spiritual friend, with a spouse, with a roommate. I don't know. Um, make sure that you're participating in the sacraments on a regular basis. These are the ways that God is, he's like, hey, I'm going to give the church, I'm going to give humanity like a lot of ways to connect with me. And like, we hit about 20 of them over here on Sunday alone, but then there's ways throughout the week too. And I just encourage you to sit under the faithfulness of God in these different time-tested ways to connect with him. And this is where we come to drink the life-giving waters of the good news. And besides, we're just made to walk together in community. So typically what happens now is I I pray, I end the sermon, I go behind this table, and then we do a confession of sin. I thought, hey, why not just do it right here, right now? Um, I think, if we're honest, every single one of us could confess some part that we're not 
fully devoted to God. And so I want to offer us this opportunity to take step one together in silence, just where, where you're at, where I'm at. And then, and then I'm going to walk over there. And communion service, you can come up when I walk over there, when I say amen, and then we are going to participate in communion together. So let's take a moment of silence and that step one, just confess, Lord, where we are not 100% yours yet. Thank you, Lord, for hearing these prayers of confession. Forgive us, Lord, for doing what our culture has ingrained in us so well, uh, to hedge our bets and to diversify and to not put all of our hope into one person or one basket uh, just in case it fails us. Lord, thank you for your word and for your track record that communicates to us that you are the only thing, the only one who's trustworthy. And would you help us by your power to overcome our fears, our allegiances to other things we think will bring us life. And help us to be wholehearted in our pursuit of you. Thank you that you are faithful. Uh, and just to forgive us when we confess to you. May my brothers and sisters and I experience cleanness, freshness, newness of life. Amen.